My grandson started the first grade about two and a half weeks ago, and it took me on a stroll down memory lane. I remember when I first started, second, first grade rather, and second too for that matter, but first grade, we went half days, and then the third week, I was introduced to something that horrified me. We had to go all day. Part of that was that we were told, our mothers were at least, were told to send a little mat that we could take a rest on while our teacher took about a 30-minute break. That 30 minutes seemed like an eternity to me because pandemonium broke out within a couple of minutes after she left. And two boys, whose names I remember to this day, Dennis Craig and David Garrett, were leading the parade. It was unbelievable. I was just shocked. And after three or four days of this, the teacher would come back every time, and then she'd just read us the riot act. It was like deja vu all over again throughout that first week. And as we were about to go into the second week of full-day school, I told my mother, I said, Mother, my stomach is hurting me. And she said, Well, what's wrong, son? And I, I didn't have much answer for that, but she sent me on to school anyway. The next day, my belly was aching even more because of what I was experiencing, and finally she got it out of me, and when I told her what was happening, she said, she didn't say these words exactly, I don't remember exactly what she said, but in effect what she says, said was, if you can't lick them, join them. And so I obeyed my mother in most things, and that was one I found to be very delightful because I began to cut up with the rest of the crowd. Well, that was a habit that stayed with me, actually, all the way through grammar school. When I was in the sixth grade, probably the best teacher I ever had was my sixth grade teacher. Her name was Anna Lucy Harrison. And Miss Harrison, everybody as they were going from fifth grade to sixth grade, we found out who our teacher would be the following year when we got our last report card. And everybody was just praying, please don't put us in Miss Harrison's room. Because she was so strict and so hard, we heard stories about how difficult she was in her requirements of academics, but also in what was then called deportment behavior. Well, true to form, Mrs. Harrison did as she was predicted to do, and my grades took a nosedive. I'd never made a C in my entire life. I was a straight-A student, except in conduct and writing, until I got into the sixth grade. And it was, it was just too much for me. I didn't get a bellyache. I went to school every day. I was mature enough to deal with that. But when I got my first report card, there were the grades, letter grades, for the subjects which I was studying under her tutelage. And on the other side, there were things having to do with conduct. And one of the things that I got a check mark, really, it was like a U. They gave excellent E. I never got one of those. S, satisfactory. I got a lot of those. But I'd never had a U, and I got a U, unsatisfactory. It's like getting an F in conduct in one of those areas. And the area was, as it was printed on the standardized report card was, makes good use of time. And then in that area, Mrs. Harrison had written very neatly but very boldly, talks too much. 
Well, I could blame it on what occurred to me in the first grade and followed me in the other grades leading up to being in her class, but really, I'm a person who historically has loved to talk. Does that surprise you? Not at all, I'm sure. I do love to talk. I did not make the kind of use that was necessary because I was too busy talking to my classmates to listen to what she was seeking to teach me. And she had much to teach me. Fortunately, a lot of that sunk in. It was probably she who first introduced me to the proverb that God gave you two ears and only one tongue so that you would listen twice as much as you speak. Do you know that God wants us, above all things, to be good listeners? Are you aware of that? Would it surprise you to discover that Jesus spoke more about listening than any other subject? He gave more commands to listen and to hear. Why? Because Jesus says about his own words, heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will never pass away. And the Father on the Mount of Transfiguration said to the apostles Peter and James and John, He said, This is my chosen one. Listen to him. This is the uniform message of the Godhead to us. Listen to Jesus Christ. Listen to what he has to say. After Jesus had fed the 5,000, as is recorded in the sixth chapter of John's Gospel, we read that Jesus says to the people, He says, I am the bread, the bread of life, which has come down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. And then there was a large contingency of His disciples Disciples, mind you, not the apostles, but the disciples, people who had thrown their lot in with Jesus. And they said, this communication is too difficult. Who can do it? And they left. And then Jesus said, if anyone takes of this bread of life, this person will live because my words are spirit and they are life. The word of Jesus is the word which leads us to eternal life because the word of Jesus leads us to Him and He in turn leads us to the Father. Remember what Jesus said about Himself. He said, I never speak a word on my own initiative. I first hear what the Father says, and then I transfer those words to you. I give them to you. When we hear the words of Christ, we know He is fully God and fully man. We know in His humanity He's submitted Himself fully to the Father, and the Father would speak to Him. In the Gospel of John, often we hear Jesus introducing a statement with this formula, as it were, Truly, truly, I say to you. The word truly in each case translates into English our word amen. Amen. Amen, amen, I say to you. 
When do we normally say amen? Well, at the end of a prayer, yes. And when we hear someone say something that really resonates with us in the spiritual sense, in the best sense, sometimes we say amen. When Jesus would introduce statements with truly, truly, it was His way of affirming and confirming that He had heard the Father speak and then He was passing that on to those who first heard Him speak those words. The Bible says that we are to be quick to listen and slow to speak. What we need to do today is let the great physician take our spiritual temperature. I remember when I would go to my pediatrician, and even sometimes today my doctor, I like this about my doctor, he'll say, stick out your tongue. He'll take a tongue depressor and take a look at my tongue because you can tell a lot about one's physical health by taking a peek at that person's tongue. And so the doctor Carruthers, my pediatrician, would do that and he could tell something. It's as if Christ would say to you and me today, stick out your tongue, your spiritual tongue, and let me check your spiritual health. Please take your Bible now and turn to the book of Luke, the 8th chapter. We're going to read and study together the only parable of Jesus that is included in each of what are called the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The only one. That in itself should be a clue to us that we really need to zone in and hone in to this particular teaching of Jesus. I'm reading today from the New American Standard Bible and encourage you to follow in the Bible that you have with you. Luke 8, 4, And when a great multitude were coming together, and those from the various cities were journeying to him, he spoke by way of a parable. The sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell beside the road, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. And other seed fell on rocky soil, and as soon as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. And other seed fell into the good soil and grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great. As he said these things, he would call out, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. After each one of these descriptions of the soils, it's highly probable that Jesus cried out, called out. And it means he kept on doing it. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Does that sound familiar? Jesus says this throughout the Gospels, but also even in his letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. In the Revelation chapters 2 and 3, he concludes all of those messages. Let him who has an ear to hear, hear what the Spirit of God is saying. We need to perk up whenever the Word of God is spoken to us, and we need to hear what he has to say. Then his disciples, his inner circle, began questioning him as to what this parable might be. Verse 10 says, And he said, To you has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. May I pause there just a moment? 
the word order in the language of the New Testament is that which helps us to understand what the writer or the speaker was emphasizing. This sentence, which says, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. The word which appears first is you. So let me put it in the order, if we're looking at it with Greek reading eyes, this is what we would see. It would say this. You, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. They would have understand, understood rather that they were a select group. They were singled out to really know what Christ was saying about the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Would you agree that the mysteries of the kingdom of God are valuable? That's a, a word that's too mild. They are invaluable. Their worth is beyond our understanding. And so Jesus is getting their attention. And he says, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. One more observation before we look at the rest of verse 10. The word has been granted means that if we who know Jesus listen to the word of God, that word is Ours, it has been granted to us, and these mysteries will not be taken away from us. And the reason is because our ears have been opened by God. One of the Psalms in the King James Version has this line in it. Speaking of God, the psalmist writes, He dug me an ear. That was to say, in the case of that particular psalmist, God came and his ear of this psalmist's ear was stopped up in some way, clogged with debris. And what God did, he took an instrument, as it were, and he removed that which would keep that psalmist from hearing and understanding the Word of God. You, if you know Jesus Christ, are privy just as surely as these people to whom this was first taught, became privy to the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Now look at the second part, verse 10. But to the rest, it is in parables, in order that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. That last sentence probably rings a bell for someone in the room. In Isaiah 6, remember when the year that Uzziah died, that Isaiah went to the temple and he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And what did he see? What did he observe? He observed angelic beings, seraphim. And they were singing holy, 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 antiphonally it's probable. They were singing holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty as he witnessed the train of the robe of the one true God, the thrice holy God. He was overwhelmed as he listened to this. And then all of a sudden, one of those seraphim took a coal off the altar there. And he took it, he put it on the lips of Isaiah. After having heard what that seraph had said prior to that, when the seraph said, that God is holy. He said, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. 
And then the Lord said, Whom can I send to deliver this message to my people? And he said, Here I am, Lord, send me. And then this part in the second part of verse 10 is something that God said to him. That he was going to give him a message that would not be seen or understood with the ear. That's an odd kind of mission to be sent on, isn't it? When we send people on mission, we've talked about some people are going on mission. The purpose of their going on mission is what? To deliver the message of God. Isaiah's was different. Thank God we have a more positive mission in the sense that the gospel is very positive, isn't it? It has some bad news. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but is followed quickly by the good news. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God demonstrates His own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If we confess with our mouth and believe with our heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead, we call Him Lord, then we shall be saved. That is a wonderful message, isn't it? But isn't it interesting to you that some people just don't get it? There's more than one person, I don't know who it is in this room, who hasn't gotten it yet, probably. And God brought you here today. If you're still pondering and trying to figure out what that message is, this message is for you. So what kind of listener are you? There are four types of listeners that Jesus describes in this passage. Verse 11, he says, now the parable is this. The Lord is explaining this to them and he's explaining it to us. He says, the seed is the word of God. Now remember, last week we looked at another parable of Jesus about the sowing of seed having to do with Sharing the gospel with people. And we saw how the sower is one who just indiscriminately sows seed. And wherever that falls, hopefully there will be a place in the soil upon which it falls that it can find nourishment and moisture and germinate, grow and produce fruit. But in that parable, remember what Jesus taught? The farmer who sows the seed has no power to make that seed germinate. It's beyond his ability to do so. So he lies down at night, he goes to sleep, and before long, life begins to jump out of the ground where he has sown this seed. The seed is the Word of God. The power is in the Word of God. Undoubtedly, when Jesus talks about the seed being the Word of God, it's the word lagos, which is always used for the entire body of work that we know as the Holy Scriptures. There was no New Testament at the time that Jesus talks about this. We have the Old Testament, as we call it, and the New Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures and the Greek Scriptures. We have more information than those to whom Jesus first communicated had. Of course, he was giving the truth. Everything which he said was truth and it was life. It had the power to change people fundamentally, just like it does today. This is why the Bible says that if any man or woman is in Christ Jesus, that person is a new creation. Old things have passed away. 
And behold, all things have become new. But in its simplest form, this idea of the Word of God, the seed is the Word of God, undoubtedly had to do with the gospel itself. The good news embodied in the person of Christ, but also coming in the form of words which could be heard. The Word became flesh, Jesus. He was a visible demonstration of the mind of God. Everything He thought, said, and did. And He wants us to understand this just as surely as He did that first group to whom He explained this parable. Look at verse 12. He talks about the first category... And that would be the soil upon which the seed missed, really. It landed on a pathway. These little farms would have pathways that people would travel, and they stayed on the pathway, not wanting to disturb the agriculture on either side of the pathway. And as a result, it became sort of a beaten-down path. And as the sower would sow the seed indiscriminately, some of it would land on the path. And it would be trampled underfoot by a traveler in some cases. And then the birds would come and eat it. Let's look. Verse 12. And those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they might not believe and be saved the season of the year in which sowing occurred, the planting of seed, would vary from year to year based on the weather circumstances, but sometime between the months of October and December. The seed would lie relatively dormant during the winter months, but then about April there would be evidence that the crop was going to come in. And then in early June, it would be harvested. What is the Lord saying when He talks about how there's some seed that falls on hard ground, on a pathway? It's unreceptive. This is what He's saying. He's saying that when the Word of God is preached, the Gospel is given, and some people hear it and others don't, One group of people who do not hear it are what I would describe as disinterested hearers. There is probably more than one disinterested hearer present today that could be with the dullness of the preacher. It's always that possibility, if not a probability, it is for sure. But there are people who aren't interested. They don't get it. There's a reason they don't get it. The reason they don't get it doesn't have anything to do with their intellect on the natural level. In fact, some of the brightest people are people who can sit under clear teaching of the Word of God and it never really find root in their hearts. I was thinking in this way, I thought about Benjamin Franklin, one of the greatest of all Americans in our history. He was a brilliant man. I cannot remember with whom I was speaking this past week, but whoever it was had been reading about Ben Franklin and talking about 
what an incredible man he was in terms of the variety of abilities he had in various realms of thought and also practical application. He was a man who was fascinated with other men who were excellent in their fields of endeavor. One such man was a man from Great Britain. His name was George Whitfield. Mr. Whitfield was an evangelist. He was an Anglican. He had preached the gospel with great effect in his native Great Britain. He had come to the colonies and he had preached the gospel to those people. And literally, think about this for a moment, in open fields with thousands of people without any kind of amplification, no sound system, he could be heard to the farthest extremity. God gave him such a booming voice. But beyond that, He gave him a great passion for the gospel. And when he preached, people were forced to listen by the sheer magnitude of his personality, a Ben Franklin would say. But it was more than that. It was the gospel that he preached. It was the message he preached. He was a brilliant man in his own right. Franklin would go every time that Whitfield was preaching in the Philadelphia area where Franklin lived or other places that Franklin might have been visiting in the colonies, he would go and listen to him. He soon learned by his own testimony that he would never take money in his pockets when he went. The reason being was that when time came for the receiving of the offering, he always found himself putting his hand in both pockets, in any other pocket, and pulling out all the money was there and giving to the offering when Whitfield called for the offering. He was a powerful speaker. But for all the exposure he had to the gospel, and a man on fire by the Holy Spirit, he never, to our knowledge, gave his life to Jesus Christ. He was curious, but when it came down to real interest, he had no interest in the gospel. Why so? Well, the Bible says in the book of 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. That would be a non-believing man, a man who's yet to come to know Christ. The natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, for they are spiritually appraised. Jesus Himself, in the passage from which I quoted earlier in the sixth chapter of John, He says this, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to Me unless it has been granted Him from the Father. People who don't know the Lord... Their hearts are hard, and they cannot receive. Their hearts are like that beaten path. And that's not true of everyone who is still untouched by the power of the gospel and the power of Christ, because there are other kinds of listeners as well. Before I go forward, I would take note of the fact when he begins telling this parable, he talks about how... Some fell seed, in verse 5, some of that seed fell alongside the road, beside the road. It's the word para. 
in the Greek language. Now, here's a second kind of hearer, and that's what I believe could be described as a disillusioned hearer. Are you a disinterested hearer? Take note. If you're a disillusioned hearer, listen and see what you can do in response to the Lord. As we look again at this passage of Scripture at verse 13. And those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. It is a joyous thing when you receive the gospel, isn't it, Jesus? Isn't that a great day? Can you remember when you opened your heart to Christ? Was it a day that was a dull day or a happy day? Oh, happy day. You remember that great hymn? My mentor said that was his favorite hymn. Oh, happy day when all his sins were washed away. There's nothing like it. I think of Sister Act, I believe, where Whoopi Goldberg was leading those nuns and singing that Oh, happy day. That's a beautiful thing, isn't it? That song. It is a happy day. I remember when I received Jesus, it was a happy day. Praise the Lord. But look what goes after that. And these have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation, they fall away. This is the soil that was really just a thin layer of topsoil. And it was not uncommon, and to this day it's not uncommon, in that region of the world that there are large areas which have limestone just a couple of inches below the surface of the topsoil. And you know limestone absorbs heat. And as a result, limestone, think about, I was thinking about this, I don't know if it was Friday or Thursday, but I was thinking, I looked at my phone, and it said 68 degrees. It's about 6 in the morning. I was thinking, boy, this is going to be a great day. Then I looked at the predicted high. It says it's going to be 99 degrees. I said, there's no way it's going to go up 31 degrees in the next few hours. But I was wrong. The weatherman was right. It did, didn't it? And I could tell a huge difference from when I walked inside about 7 o'clock and when I walked back outside about noon. Oh, and then go forward to 3. It was hot. And what would happen in that region, which is very similar climatically to our area, is that that heat would be down on that topsoil where the seeds had fallen and it would hit that limestone and the limestone would heat up rapidly. And what moisture might have been in the soil would quickly evaporate. That's a picture of what happens to people who are shallow in their commitment to Christ. I don't mean if you came to Christ and you had a strong emotional experience attached to that time of giving your life to Christ. That does not negate that, but please understand your conversion, if it's only emotional, is not a Full conversion to Christ. The will has to be converted. Do you know what I mean by the will? You have to make a decision to give Jesus Christ full control of your life. That's why the Bible says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Not just Savior, but Lord. Until we come to that place 
where to the level that we understand what it means, I'm going to give my whole life to you, Lord. I'm giving my will to you. Please take control of my life. We do great disservice when we are talking to people who are inquiring about faith in the Lord to not really help them to see you must be converted in your will. And then if emotion follows that, praise God. We are people who are given emotion. God has emotion. He grieves, the Bible says in the book of Isaiah, and over also, I believe it's in the book of Ephesians, we grieve God the Father, we grieve the Holy Spirit by things we do. He, he is one who has these feelings as well. But if that's all we have, we have an incomplete faith. It's shallow. And when the time, look again, when the time of temptation comes, they fall away. Let me explain this a little more fully. The word for temptation, as it's translated here in the New American Standard Bible, is the same word that is used by James in James 1 when he says, Can it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials? And the word for trials is the same word in Greek. Pyrosmos in both cases. So what's the deal? Well, this word is one of those words which has two shades of meaning. And pause with me just a moment and think. Isn't it true for you, if you know Jesus, that temptations are trials? Isn't it true? Does it bother you when you're tempted? In Hebrews chapter 2.18, the Bible talks about Jesus how he suffered when he was tempted. I would imagine there's more than one person present who has suffered when she or he has been tempted to sin. Some of you have gone ahead and taken the bait. I'm in that camp too at times. But what we need to do is we need to understand that this word temptation, as it's translated in the New American Standard, can easily, in this case, I think, should be translated trials. Now, the Flip side of that statement that I, or question I raise, is every temptation a trial? Yes. Is every trial a temptation? Yes. They're just two ways of looking at the same thing in our lives. So here's a person who is converted and has great joy and may and likely has been drawn to making some sort of commitment to Christ based on what has been promised as far as benefit to the person who prays such a prayer. And that kind of commitment leads to a very shallow faith. And when trouble comes, do you know what such people do? They leave the faith. Because they have really not been converted in their will. So there are two kinds of hearers that we've looked at. Disinterested hearers. They don't understand having nothing to do with intellect, their eyes are still darkened by the ruler of this world. By God's grace, hopefully, if you're in that category, you'll come to faith today, understanding what it means to really give your life to Christ. If you're a person who has sort of turned away from the Lord because things are so tough in your life, I'm thinking of one man in our church. He came to Christ in a cauldron of great difficulty. And he's been following the Lord for three and a half years. He lost his family. He lost a six-figure-a-year job. 
and all the prestige that went with that. And to my great gratitude to the Lord, He has stayed the course. I had a meal with Him last week. And He just really bubbles over with joy. He probably makes less than half of what He made before. And He has to pay child support for three children. He lives at home as a middle-aged man with his parents. It's humbling, humiliating, but he has responded properly, not in a superficial way. Let's go to the third kind of hearer. Are you one of the first two, a disinterested hearer or a disillusioned hearer because God's let you down? Look, God has n- owes you and me nothing. Let me say that again. God owes you and me nothing. We owe Him everything. Everything. We would never be able to do enough to say thank you or to show that we are grateful to the Lord if we had a million lives to live. We're just incapable of that. Here's the third kind of hearer. I would call it the distracted hearer. And look at what Jesus says in verse 4. 14, rather. And the seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard. And as... They go on their way. They are choked with three things, worries, riches, and pleasures of life, and bring no fruit to maturity. Worry does not need a lot of explanation. This kind of worry is, as one writer says, egocentric worry. Just focusing on yourself completely. I mean, you're just absorbed with worry. And another writer says this about the category of person who is subject to this kind of thinking, this worrying. He said, really, it's the poor. Because the poor have to worry about just getting enough food for the next meal, much less a place to live, clothes to wear, just enough food to live. And then riches. That writer goes on to say that... Those who fall in this category are people who aren't in the first category. They don't have to worry about where their next meal is coming from, but they really want to be rich. This is the only time, by the way, this word appears in the book of Luke or the book of Acts. But let me invite you to go to 1 Timothy with me for just a moment in your Bible. And let's read what Paul writes to Timothy in the 6th chapter of 1st Timothy. Beginning with verse 6. 1st Timothy 6.6 But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. And by the way, he's already talked about people who preach the gospel in their variety, and it's a false gospel. Paul's already talked about how there are people in Timothy's day, there always have been, since the beginning of the church, there have been people who say that godliness is a means of financial gain. That flies in the face of the Word of God. Look at verse 7. For we have brought nothing into the world, 
Reminds me of Job when he said, after having lost everything, naked I came into the world and naked I shall return out of this world. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We can't take anything out of it, can we? And verse 8 says, And if we have food and covering, that would be shelter and clothing, with these we shall be content. How's your contentment level, by the way, today? But those who want to get rich fall into temptation. There's that word again. You can substitute the word trial if you wish. And a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pain. Notice the Word of God does not say money is a root of all sorts of evil. What does it say? The love of money. The problem is not with money. It's a neutral object. The problem is with the people who have that money in their possession, isn't it? And it's a good warning for us. Look down at verse 17. Instruct means keep on instructing those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited. What would keep you and me from being conceited regarded to the material wealth we have? What would keep us to do that, from doing that? What? Give it away. Thank you, Kevin. That's right, give it away. That's a practical application for sure. In Deuteronomy 8, 17 and 18, I'm paraphrasing it, but the Bible tells us this. Don't forget who gave you the power to make wealth. God gave it to you. He's the one who determines how much money you have, how much He wants you to steward in this life. So, what we need to know is don't be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Aren't riches uncertain? I read just a headline last week. said there was this big drop in the stock market. Is that true? I don't mean to ruin your day, but is, is that true? Did that happen last week? And there's all, you know, there's a lot of concern about that. A lot of people are fretting. A lot of people lost sleep last night, probably, because their portfolio shrunk several percentage points. And he goes on to say in verse 17, But on God, where is our hope to be fixed? Upon God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. I like that. Whatever God gives me, after I have done with that that He has given to me, as He would have me to do with it, Give it to the work of the Lord. Share it with my brothers in Christ who are hurting. And I have excess and I want to share it with them because they're my family. This is our privilege as members of the body of Christ. We have a great family of brothers and sisters in Christ. And then look what he goes on to say in 18. Instruct them to do good. If you're wealthy or if you're not, do good. To be rich in good works. To be generous and ready to share. The word which is translated ready to share is a word which is kin to the word. And we have a Sunday school class. I believe, David, it's your class, the Koinonia class, which means fellowship. And the basic idea of that is sharing. And this verb translated ready to share. If God has given me riches, He's given it to me to share with my brothers in Christ, my sisters in Christ, who are less fortunate than I or 
for whatever reason, have run against hard times and they need help. And then verse 19, if we do that, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. So let's go back now to the parable. The people who are like seed which have fallen in where the seed has fallen among thorns. These are weeds. And so, as I learned in my study for the message today, sometimes these thorn plants, they're really more like a thistle bush. Have you ever been to Scotland or that part or seen pictures? What is the national flower of Scotland? It's thistles, right? And if you try to reach out and take one of those beautiful blossoms off, you're going to get stuck, aren't you? And any place you touch on a thistle bush is prickly. So, we know that, but six feet they can grow in height in the Holy Land, if we will. Then we see that in other parts of the world. And they're very, very vigorous. More than the wheat that would grow up, probably, and would choke it out. And what chokes it out is the distraction of what this passage says. Worries. Are you worried today? That's a distraction, isn't it? What is the cure for worry? The cure for worry is trusting in the Lord. You keep Him in perfect peace whose mind is fixed on you. Isaiah 26.3 You want to claim a promise that will change your life? Try this one on too. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There's no price tag you can put on the value of that. What about riches? Well, just enjoy the Lord. We, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, which are in Christ Jesus our Lord. Everything we need for joy is present in a relationship with Christ. And then the pleasures of life. The man which I referred to said those who are more apt to be caught up in worry are those who are living hand to mouth. The second group are people who are wannabes. They want to be rich, so they're pursuing those things. And then the pleasures of this life. When you get enough money, there's a great temptation to spend them on Pleasures. Now, I'm not against spending money on pleasure. Vacation, great. Hobbies, all that. But please be careful. Because it's easy to get really lulled into a spiritual stupor that is not healthy in doing all these pleasurable things. And really, when you come back from doing some of those things, you're just worn out. And bring no fruit to maturity. So these are the three kinds of hearers. Disinterested hearers. Disillusioned hearers. Distracted hearers. But you know what the Bible says? I mentioned that verse from 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural man, that's the unbeliever, cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him because they are spiritually appraised. But the spiritual man is not appraised by anybody the man who in, in whom the Spirit of Christ dwells, the woman who is filled with the Holy Spirit, those people have access to insight and to a great relationship with the Lord. Let's see.
how that works. Verse 15, here's the good soil. All these other soils are not categorized as good. This is the only one. The seed and the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word. You've got to listen, right? You've got to hear. Heard the word in an honest and good heart. Now, we know every man's heart, every woman's heart before receiving Christ is got bad in it. No man has a perfect heart. But there are people, when they hear the word, when you hear the gospel, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. When you hear that, and you can bear the same testimony, Paul, as he finishes that saying, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he says, of whom I am the worst. Paul had to come to grips with his abject poverty spiritually and give Christ full control of his life. And the same is true for us too. He had a heart that wanted to receive Christ. Do you have that kind of heart? Or have you done that in the past? And hold it fast. Don't let go. Don't let go. And bear fruit with perseverance. What kind of fruit? The fruit of the Spirit. Also, people whom God uses you to touch. And interestingly, when we look at these kinds of soils, we can immediately rule out the first for sure. But when you think about the person who excitedly received the gospel and then trouble entered into her life and she just sort of disappeared. Or the person who was like the third soil and the cares of life crowded out the Word of God in that person's life. The worries of the world and the riches that were pursued and the pleasures that came when that person got wealthy that distracted that person from the walk that he or she had been called to. Do you know, those things didn't necessarily happen overnight. It's sort of a gradual erosion of commitment to the Lord. But this kind of soil is the best, isn't it? Awesome, isn't it? I like to take this passage and I point back to verse 8. Whenever I meet with someone who's a new believer, after the initial meeting when the person may have prayed to receive Christ, and then I'm beginning to follow up, the first passage I come to is this passage. And I read through it. And I ask at the end, which kind of soil do you want to be? I've never had anyone say anything except the good soil. Amen? We want to be good soil, right? So how does that work? We yield ourselves to the Lord. We recognize the incomparable value of the seed of the Word of God. And we order our lives in accordance with the Word of God. And where we are tempted to give up our faith or we're tempted to go after riches, to go after pleasure, as opposed to seeking God. Remember what Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3, in the last days men will be lovers of pleasure. That's what he says. Lovers of pleasure. Lovers of themselves and lovers of money. 
Wow. Is there ever a good commentary on our day and time? But we want to be disciplined hearers. For we put ourselves regularly in a position to hear. And this is not like gritting your teeth and bearing it. Oh my God, I've got to read this book again this morning. Some of you think like that. And you quit reading. But coming, recognizing to whom are we coming? We're coming to the God of the universe who is our Father. And our Lord Jesus is the one who's made it possible. And then the Holy Spirit is the one who helps us to pray. So every member of the Godhead is involved in this. It's remarkable. In the book of Hebrews, I'll close with this. Chapter 3, verse 13. We read earlier from Psalm 95, and it quotes from Hebrews 3.13, quotes from that psalm in part. Look at what the Scripture says in verse 7 of Hebrews 3. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, namely Israel provoked God, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation. Do you know God can get mad at His people? A lot of the popular theology says God, I mean, anything goes. God loves us, but part of His love for us has a disciplinary side. And thank God for His disciplinary love. He goes on to say, They always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways, as I swore my, in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The Lord invites us to come to Him. All of you who are weary and heavy laden, and you shall find rest for your soul. Do you need rest today? Come to the Lord. Don't harden your heart anymore. Would you just bow your head? Would you say to the Lord in your heart, just where you are, say, Lord, please forgive me of hardening my heart to the Word of God. And, oh, Lord... Please come and take control of my life. I don't want to be a disinterested. I don't want to be a disillusioned. I don't want to be a distracted hearer. I want to be a disciplined hearer. Oh, Lord, give me ears to hear and then the will to obey you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. We'll be leaving through these doors. And if anyone, remember, if you want, would like to have prayer, afterwards I'll be here and be more than happy to pray with you.